You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Warning! This podcast contains spoilers from Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, some of them coming from screenwriter Michael Waldron himself. So if you have not watched Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, go watch it, come back. This podcast will be here for you, waiting for you in your podcast queue when you are done. It's not going anywhere. Go watch the movie first, then come back. And welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep to your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. On today's episode, on Previously On, we're going to talk about the news of the week, including the Avatar Way of Water teaser trailer, TLDR, pores. It's all about the pores, the Navi pores of the skincare routine, the new Ms. Marvel teaser, including Kevin Feige's recent comments about about tweaks to Ms. Marvel's powers. And then we will celebrate the lives and works of two iconic comics creators, Neil Adams and George Perez, who uh, passed away recently in the airlock We will be answering all of your questions about Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness in the hive mind. Oh, folks, big interview with Michael Waldron, the writer of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And of course, I'm ready. Writer of many other things, including Community, Rick and Morty and many, many others. Joining me now to talk about all of that stuff is the great, the powerful the absolute most knowledgeable human being that I know about <gasps> comics. A fan of Return to Oz. Yeah. Among many other weird movies. <laughs> Former teen goth, Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? I'm so, I feel like I've truly been seen in this interview. It's true. I do know about comics, but I also do love weird movies. And I was I love a goth weird when too. I was a baby. <laughs> When I was a small, what was child. the what was the what was like the soundtrack? Oh my god! Um, so when I was really young, it was definitely more like punk because that was what my mom was into. Yeah. But when I was like, I don't know, a teenager, like an early teenager, I went to see Queen of the Dam, the Aaliyah movie that was the yeah. like the, the interview with Vampire. Yeah. And that is just like there's a meme going around at the moment where it's like you changed my life, and then it's like I'm literally just a 90 minute advert for new metal. So basically that soundtrack and any Deftones, that was like my... Deftones? Yeah, dude, I love the Deftones. Shouts to the Deftones. Shouts to Aaliyah, RIP, star of Queen of the Damned. And what a time that must have been. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready to talk about some news? Let's start here with the T-Zone of the Navi. 
The beautiful, uh, non-greasy, perfectly uh, taken care of skin of the Navi aliens and the Avatar Way of Water teaser trailer released by James Cameron. That's right. We got him out of the seas. Where has James Cameron been? For the last decade plus, he's been underwater in his custom-made submarine. We brought him to the surface so that he could create for you people the sequel to Avatar, released in 2009. That's right, 2009. Uh, Rosie, what did you think of this? Yeah, just just nothing at all. Is the world is completely the same (laughs) as it was in 2009, right? Because we're we're all everything exactly the same, same. and everything is just as it was (laughs) back then. Um, Are you? What are your feelings about this trailer? Um, What are your feelings about the Avatar film franchise? Owner of uh, the top grossing film of all time, Mantle, with a uh, box office tag of $2.84 billion. Yep. Okay, so I think that if you like the first Avatar movie, this trailer will probably be like, you will love it. Like, it's just, it, it's <laughs> like, it's like if there was a, if there was a very expensive Super HD High tech. He definitely got really into water technology this time. It's kind of like his Moana. Because like Moana. He absolutely loves water tech. (laughs) Yeah. In Moana, Disney worked out all these different ways to to animate water. And then they continued that with Frozen 2. And and I was there at the studio and they're talking about it. And this is obviously his version of that. Like when you're watching it, there's so many water shots. Yeah, it looks very pretty. I grew up in an era where Fern Gully was a very accessible movie. Oh, man, so Fern Gully. This legit, the first Avatar movie, I was like, this is just a remake of Fern Gully that costs <laughs> a lot more <laughs> and doesn't have like a, a rapping Robin Williams bat. Probably for the better. But otherwise, yeah. like, you know, it's it's Fern, it's, it's Fern Gully. It's Dances with the Wolves. It's the same kind of story. I will go. I went to see Avatar the night it opened uh, at an IMAX. Same. In the biggest Same. screen I could find because absolutely, I thought it was going to be the the evolution of cinema, kind of in that. <laughs> right, this I, is I it. felt up for the hype. Get, back step then. aside, greats of cinema. Yeah. Step aside, Scorsese. They said, step like, aside, George Lucas. They're like, this will be like the, like the moment in Wizard of Oz where they went from black and white to Technicolor. Like this is right. going to be that moment, and um, it wasn't. And also, I'm a fan of. <laughs> I'm a fan of 3D that's like more corny. Like I like 3D. Right, right. Like Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, you know, like, My yeah, Bloody like, Valentine came out just before my this bloody Valentine, three, yeah. 3D remake, which is like so outrageous and zero-sy. But the 3D in that was like amazing. You're walking through the school. It feels like you're kind of there and then pickaxes are coming out of your face. After that, I went to the IMAX and I was like, <laughs> the pickaxe. I was like, this is just like. If you're going to tell me it's 3D, I want to feel like something's going to hit me. Like, that's the 3D here's, I want. Here's, I'm going to see this movie on opening night, as I think mm-hmm. many people are. Like, we're all shitting on this movie. This money, this movie is going to make a ton of money. It's yeah. going to make a lot of money. Um, I thought and continue to think at this very moment that the first Avatar movie is pretty dumb and not good. <laughs> but I saw it in the theater uh, high out of my mind, if I'm going to be honest, yep. and I think that's exactly what I'm going to do uh, this time in IMAX, probably 3D. I'm going to take like two edibles and just melt into my seat 
as I gaze deeply into the beautiful, glistening blue skin of the Navi. Oh, yeah. Also, Jermaine Clement's in this one. So I'm like, we can yeah! find things. We can find things to love. Also, Michelle Yeoh. So, of course, we'll both. Yes. Next up. New Ms. Marvel uh, teaser trailer uh, called Not Alone and Kevin Feige's uh, comments about some tweaks to uh, Kamala Khan's uh, powers. Uh, The series begins streaming June 8th on Disney+. Plus. Here is what Feige told Empire regarding uh, Ms. Marvel's powers. Quote, we adapt the comics. It's not an exact translation. Uh, uh, Ms. Marvel came about in a very specific time within the comic book continuity. She's now coming into a very specific time within the MCU continuity, and those things didn't match. Uh, and uh, you, he continues, you will see great comic splash panels and some of our action sequences. If you want big, giant hands and arms, well, they're here in spirit, if not in stretchy, plastic-type ways. We said on our previous episode that this is... They changed the powers so nobody would be confused when Reed Richards hits. Yeah. And... That's what they did. Also, now some people are upset. No, I think I think this makes a lot of sense. I like the cosmic idea. Also, he says something here that I think is very telling. It, it's very vague, like it has to be. But he, when he says um, she came in in a very specific time within the comic book continuity, we have talked about that. She came in right. at a time when Marvel was not using the X Men, so they had to make right. her an Inhuman. That is not the case now. That is obviously what that's referring to. And come, bum, bum, bum. right. And then coming into the very specific time right now, we're in this era where everybody is getting these powers that are artifact-based powers, and each of the artifacts right. seem to have a color that relates to the Infinity Gems. So now she's going to have these artifact-style powers that she's going to gain from maybe the Negabands, perhaps whatever they are that seem like they make some version of the quantum bands. Quantum bands. Yeah, it's unclear right now. You know, and. And that is going to allow her to manipulate matter. So her powers will look the same. But like you said, we he even says here, not in stretchy plastic type ways. And that's yeah, because, A, very, ba- right. very, very hard to make those powers look good. We know that from every Fantastic Four movie. B, yes. if you're about to introduce the Fantastic Four, you can't have another character with those same powers debut before Reed Richards. Now, some would say, okay, but you have Korg in the Thor-verse slash wider MCU, and then you're going to bring in the Thing. And there were uh, some fans of Miss Marvel who were upset, Mm -hmm. and I think that that is, if anything, a wonderful indicator about how ready the fan base is to to see this translated to the screen. I understand that there are uh, some voices out there that are a, a little perturbed about it, but I think overall... That's like a great side. When you have an audience that's like Mm -hmm. engaged enough to care about how the powers are translated to the screen, that's a great problem to have. It's an amazing thing. And also it's like it's kind of hard to say now because it was, you know, now it's like eight years ago. But but that comic was a it was a cultural phenomenon. Like it it had six printings of the first issue, the first Miss Marvel uh, solo title with Kamala. It was this just huge moment that made so many people feel seen and allowed Marvel Editorial to, for the first time since Spider-Man, create an absolutely new ground-level character. So the fandom love is just so there. And I think something we always say, which I love in these kind of moments, is like, the good thing is, even if you watch the show and her powers... It doesn't feel the same. I'm sure she's going to say I'm big and I'm sure she's going to punch something with a giant yeah, fist, she's, right? Yeah. Like it's kind of going to yeah. be more of a Green Lantern version, though, I think, a willpower, imagination, yeah. which makes sense as she's a fanfic writer and a kind of fan of superheroes. Absolutely. But 
even if you watch it and it doesn't feel like what you hoped for, the best thing is the comics still exist. And that's the nicest thing. This is always additive. It never takes away from the version that you love. So hope I'm hoping that this show is going to just totally make all Miss Marvel fans really, really happy to be able to see her on screen, even if right now they're understandably sort of a bit like, hmm... I'm I'm really excited, not only because the trailer really captured the energy of the comics, but because like we're in an era right now with uh, some of the Disney Plus shows. Hawkeye is a great example. Mm-hmm. Kate Bishop, where we're starting to bring in the characters who are like fans of the original yeah. superheroes. Like it's this next younger generation of fans that are coming in that are like, oh my God, like Hawkeye is my favorite super. Mm-hmm. Like, and that is just like a fun space to play with because I, you know, we are fans of these characters too. So it's this really fun way to just find a connection with these new characters coming in. Um, lastly, in this segment, uh, we have to recognize the, pa- the recent passing of two uh, just, Real legends uh, in the comics community, uh, Neil Adams, who passed away uh, in late April, and George Perez, who passed away uh, recently, two creators who I don't think it's an uh, an overstatement to say really defined the way comics looked mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s, like in a major way. Uh, Neil Adams with his work uh, on Batman and then on uh, on Green Arrow, which at the time was was one of the most culturally relevant comics yeah. going at the time. Uh, not to mention his like pre-John Byrne work with the X-Men. I was going to say like Perez. his X-Men that yeah. led in there is like yeah. that stuff. For a lot of people, that was the first X-Men they ever read, whether it was in back issues. And, and he had yeah. this bombastic art style. And he also did a lot for creators. Like um, Jim Lee did an amazing post when Absolutely. he passed about how Krusty Bunkers, which was his art studio, he mentored all these different creators and and he brought up the next generation of comics artists. And and then there's, you know, this very famous story, which we kind of have talked to a little bit here about how he was one of the co-founders of something called the Comic Book, uh, the Academy of Comic Book Arts, which he co-founded with Stanley and Carmen Impantino. And Stan kind of wanted it to be like the Academy of Motion Pictures. PR, just pure, yeah. pure, pure, pure like, marketing arm. Right, yeah. And, Adams, hey, yeah. and Adams was like, how about if we like used it to do labor organization and started like leveraging it to try and get creator rights and set page rates and essentially start what would have almost been a union. And that, that didn't happen, but that's like such an iconic kind of moment. And he also... I I go to a lot of comic conventions and Neil always had this massive booth that was like a battleship on the corner of the show floor. And he would just speak to anyone. I heard him tell so many incredible stories and he was just the friendliest, like loveliest, most engaging guy who just acted like he was just another fan, which I just, and, and Perez, you know, George, George was the same, just two really special people. And I mean, George was just like Neil Adams. He redefined so many of these comics that we love. I mean, Infinity Gauntlet, that is him. Crisis on Infinite Earths, that is, that is, you know, that is his art. Uh, I first became aware of him through New Teen Titans, yep. which was, uh, you know, he just had this this ability to 
crams so much detail, so many characters in a single piece of art, whether it was a, a great cover or a splash page, and have everything there pop. You know, like, you know, when I think about my earliest experience with comics, it was just like staring at the pictures mm-hmm. for hours and of hours course. and picking out details. And George Perez absolutely was – his art – was so enjoyable to mm-hmm. interact with that way. You could just like you could just absolutely fall in it. And again, has drawn some of the most iconic and influential stories yeah. in comics and absolutely defined the way comics looked for a certain era. Yeah. Like was part of that movement. And I think like something that people always talk about, and I know like as people who the the big age-old question, are you a Marvel fan? Are you a DC fan? Like both of these creators span those publishers. And especially with George, his work on New Teen Titans with Marv Wolfman, that was one of the first really big DC books that brought that um, real-life gravitas. It followed the Teen Titans in their everyday life. It did the thing yeah. that people always say made Marvel stand apart. You know, people always say, like, Spider-Man's broke. He's sad. He's doing his hero. Right. New Teen Titans bought that humanity. And George and Marvel just, like such wonderful people. I interviewed them once about their collaborative friendship and they just obviously like love each other and they loved making those books. And it's just, yeah, it's a really terrible loss, but it's an incredible time to look back at these creators and celebrate the amazing work they did. George also did an unreal arc on Wonder Woman that was meant to be like a six month run and ended up being five years long. With, Reinvigorated the character, yeah, yeah. Just with with Lemween and and uh, it was just like so beautiful. I always think of that art. There's there's big pages from that, like these cover pages of this bright, beautiful Themyscira with all different. That was the yeah. first time he really reimagined who a Themyscira could be, which is still changing now. But but that was this kind of more diverse Themyscira, and the colors are just. So beautiful like that. Yeah, both of them were just incredible. It's a great time to go and read some of those books. Absolutely. Our thoughts are with their families. When we're back, Mailbag of Madness. I joined uh, the great John Lovett on stage this week for a live recording of Love It, Love It, Love It, Love It, Leave It, live at the Hollywood Improv. Other guests include Hysteria's Aaron Ryan, the tremendously funny Atsuko Okatsuka, to listen to what went down, listen and subscribe to Love It or Leave It wherever you get your podcasts. What a funny and tremendously entertaining evening it was. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring... The Kardashians, of course, and Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. We're stepping out of the airlock to answer... The best that we possibly can, all of your various questions that you had coming out of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Rosie, are you ready? I'm ready. First question. Cameron asks, in Universe 818, which we have determined is 838, thanks to Mike D on Twitter who saw the movie with captions, they had control of their Ultron. 
So Vision would never have been created. Would Wanda still create children without the trauma of losing her husband? Also, with no evil Ultrons, is Pietro still alive in that universe? These are very important questions. All great questions. Of course, we we don't know. But I like the idea that what makes 616 in the MCU different is Wanda falls in love with Vision and thus isn't able to have actual non-magical biological children in this universe because of that relation she has with uh, with Vision. But in all the other universes, she meets someone and that's why she has the children. It's quite tragic. So um, I think probably what happens in it all depends if, you know, is to- what what role does Tony Stark have mm-hmm. in 838? But my sense is that um, some form of Vision would exist, whether it's Jarvis or some other android, um, and that vision probably exists, but not in the purely like autonomous thinking robot, actual living sentient being uh, that we see in the 616 MCU. But of course, we don't know. That's just a theory. Yeah, I think you're basically 100% right, because the one thing that makes this theory really work, the comic book version of Vision, as we've said many times, based on the like brain imprint of Simon Williams' Wonder Man. Cool. Yeah. The MCU version is so unique and so based on these unbelievably could only really happen once in a multiverse situation with, you know, Jarvis becoming Ultron, Ultron losing control, and then Banner, Tony, and Thor all needing to be there to create the version of Vision that Wanda falls in love with. So I think it makes a lot of sense that she would never be able to fall in love with Vision in these other universes because, well, Tony's not there, Thor's not there, blah, blah, blah. You don't have that exact version. So you could have a Vision. You could have a white Vision. You could have a Vision who she just doesn't like because they don't have that same connection. But I think in those universes, those are her biological children or her adopted children, but just not created through that kind of corrupted magic that we saw in WandaVision. Um, well, let me look. next uh, question from Matt Turl. Uh, this is from my DMs. Uh, were Wanda's guard monsters at Mount Wondergore, Rosie's favorite location in all the ah. MCU, uh, were they diorates? So this is a very interesting pull mm-hmm. um, and that I had not thought of at all. Tell us. Do you want to tell us? Yeah, who, yeah, who yeah. Okay, so this is. This is really cool because visually, I have to say, this is a great catch. Now, it's a great, it's catch. a great catch, so like a really good catch. The, the comic book. Before I get into the diaries, the comic book reasoning that those monsters would follow Wanda is because in the comics, when she's born, she gets touched by the magic of Cthon. Those are Cthon's right. kind of minions, so they can feel her magic in her. That's probably why they're following. Now, whether or not they're diorates, I don't know who owns the rights to those at the moment, but (laughs) in Rom the Space Knight, known mostly just as Rom, that which which has been at Marvel and IDW and was created by Bill Mantlo and Al Milgram, there are these giant red monstrous antagonists called diorates. And in the Marvel Universe, they are an evolutionary offshoot of scrolls. So there is like a lot of cool weird stuff here and i just i think that would be so cool if that was actually what they decided that they were going to go for especially because 
apparently, now I did not know this. This is this is the magic of the internet. Apparently, diorates actually like studied evil magic at some point yes. in the history of Rom. So I think that could be just so cool. And if they are not officially diorates, they were definitely influenced because you just got to look a picture. I, Google diorates and you will see that Jason's DM questioner was on point with this catch. Now, to your uh, to your comment about whether IP-wise this would be, this actually could be the case. Now, you mentioned these are the antagonists of Rom the Space Knight. Rom the Space Knight, a character I absolutely freaking loved when I was a kid, mm -hmm. and that James Gunn has recently uh, talked about, uh, you know, whether or not he'd be interested in doing a movie about Rom the Space Knight. Whatever the case, Rom the Space Knight was like a licensed character by I think Hasbro or Parker Brothers or so it was a board game character for a board game Parker that never Brothers. came out Parker Brothers and was licensed to Marvel as a way to kind of like promote this uh board game that never really ended up coming out so Marvel it's unclear who owns the character is what we're saying so uh, if even if they are diorates I don't know if Marvel could come out and say they are diorates. But somebody said, somewhere's I love probably, the idea that they're, yeah. I love the idea that they are diorates. Somebody somewhere is probably really stoked. Some production designer is like, I'm so glad somebody <laughs> yeah. caught that. Up next. Okay, so Jess asks, why does Doctor Strange still carry around the Eye of Agamotto? Wasn't the Time Stone already destroyed in the main timeline? Does it do stuff without the Time Stone? This is one of the most asked questions in the MCU. Sam Raimi, director of Multiverse of Madness, did recently give us an answer. In an interview with Cinema Blend, he said, the Eye of Agamotto still has magical properties even without the Time Stone. Then he cheekily said, as any true Strange fan would know. So it reveals to him things that are unseen. And theoretically could, could get people, um, like if you were lying to Strange, mm -hmm. he could engage the Eye of Agamotto and you would not be able to tell him lies. Yeah, in the comics, the Eye of Agamotto is actually like lives inside the amulet. And so the Time Stone in the original like Infinity Saga essentially replaced the, the notion of the right. Eye being a separate entity. But as the, spoiler alert, uh, as the movie of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness ends, <laughs> we see Doctor Strange with the eye on his head, which seems to come from the Darkhold. But that also links back to the Eye of Agamotto. And sometimes people who hold it, like the Sorcerer Supreme, they can manifest it as a third eye. So there's lots of cool, weird magic. But I'm so, so glad Jess asked this question because I think this is one of the biggest questions that MCU people have had since the Endgame Infinity War stuff. Like, why would he still wear it? Now you know. The Eye of Agamotto is still powerful, still doing some magical stuff. I love that. Dan asks, something Jason said in an episode raised a question for me. In the cafe scene early on when Stephen and America and Wong are first meeting, how did Stephen remember that they had recently had a multiverse scare regarding Spider-Man? Isn't nobody supposed to be able to remember that or even that Spider-Man exists? Sorry if this is a stupid question. That's a great question. That's a great question. Not a stupid question. I think that is going to be, if there is one question most people have coming out of it, it is going to be about that scene that to some people may have seemed throwaway. So this is a great question, Dan. This is a great question. So how it should work. The spe it, you know, if it's based at all on uh, on uh, One More Day, uh, one of the most controversial uh, story arcs <laughs> in Spider-Man history, right? But if it's anything like the spell that was cast in that 
story arc. So if if like you got went on your phone and saw a picture of Peter Parker and you hanging out like at a party, uh, would that spark the realization that you are friends with Peter Parker? No. What would happen is you'd you'd look at the picture and be like, huh, this is really boring. I'm not interested in this boring picture and I'm moving on. And then you would flip to the next picture and you'd forget about it. So Peter Parker is the kind of is the important part of this question, Dan, because it's not that people forget about Spider-Man. They forget that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Is that correct, Rosie? Yeah, that is correct. And also something that I find really interesting that this question sparks off that I really want to know is like, do Wong and Steven remember that they helped Spider-Man fight a multiversal scare? Or do they just remember that Spider-Man was involved with one in New York? Right. So they know about the multiverse. Like, how deep do the layers of the spell go? That's what I want to know. I think that I don't think it's a stupid question. I think it's actually like one of the most interesting kind of throwaway notions where it's like, what's that going to lead to? Like, because everyone thought maybe Wong remembered that Peter right. was Spider-Man because he was in Carmitage. He was going through a portal. But it seems like from this, they kind of generally remember Spider-Man exists. They know something multiversal happened, but we don't know if they were if they remember being involved in it, because it was very heavily right. related to the notion of Peter Parker and many Peter Parkers. So my guess is they remember that they were helping Spider-Man with something. And if Wong, of course, remembers that whatever it was, <laughs> Stephen fucked it up in a really bad way. But my guess is if the spell again works anything like it like it does in the comics, that they would just never... They would just not at all be – they would have no curiosity about what exactly they were doing with mm -hmm. Spider-Man. They would just be like, oh, I remember that thing that we did with Spider-Man. Steven, you really fucked that up. Yeah. And they would just never – the question of, hey, what were we doing? What was specifically that adventure about would just never come up. And certainly anything uh, related to the Peter Parker-ness of it all would just be gone. That, I think, actually answers a really interesting question about – Something we've been thinking about, like, why wasn't this multiversal collapse connected to the other one? Well, you wouldn't have really been able to explain how everyone exactly. knew it. So that's actually really exactly. smart. Thank you, Dan. You made me have a revelation. Corey asks, my name is Corey, day one listener. Friday the 13th is my birthday. Hey. Happy birthday. And the perfect day for a Doctor Strange mailbag episode. Uh, Corey is about to ask one of my favorite questions. My question is... With 616 being designated in the MCU as our Infinity Saga universe, how do we rectify that with the MCU already being a separate universe in the comics known as Earth-19999? This is something that keeps me up at night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Legitimately. No, no, no. Rosie. Truly, truly. No, I'm truly. truly. Like, I, I, how, especially with 616 being officially codified in, in this movie, I mean... Rosie, where do you land on this? Because I'm not sure. I feel like this is, we're going to retcon this is what's going to so. happen. I, I think so. We're on the surface, it makes a lot of sense. We have actually used in the show as a shorthand 616 for main timeline in the movies. But making it canon makes it very confusing because the whole point of these universes is that an animated film, a movie, right. a comic, each one is its own separate universe within right. the greater span of the multiverse. So for me, this sits uncomfortably. And I think there is a likelihood, as you said, that this would get retconned or it would be revealed that the 
838 universe is not as it seems because that is just one person's idea of a designation and it's a really good Easter egg for comic book fans. But I believe that we will go back to Earth 19999 or it will be an ongoing conversation because the kind of original multiverses of like DC Universe, which has been doing it for longer, and that notion of being able to have all the different things that exist, the Timber and Batman universe, the comic books, yes. the Elseworld comic books, everything, that is part of what makes the multiverse special. So I would be surprised if it was anything more than just a shorthand that we're using here. And at some point, we'll get to have another conversation about it because it's one of the most beloved things for people to talk about. Here's the other thing. Could it be that... This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I want to hear, hear it. I want to hear it. Okay. Uh, could it be that, you know, like when you look at a crayon box and you're like, man, does the color blue look the same to me as it does to you? It, maybe it's the case that whatever universe... Uh, you know, whatever heroes are fighting whatever adventure in the broader MCU multiverse, they all consider themselves 616. And therefore, the numbering system is altered in that way because to them, they are the main universe. Yeah. I think that if you're using, if if we are going to say that 616 translates as main Marvel universe, which is what it is in the comics here, main Marvel cinematic universe, you could argue that like, almost every universe would see itself that way. And the only reason that Christine doesn't designate herself that way is because she's a scientist. So she sees it right. scientifically. Um, but yeah, I don't think this is the last we will hear of the designations, especially with the terms incursion and, and kind of these hints at a greater multiversal crisis coming. But again, Corey, I think I think they're just going to retcon this yeah. at some point, probably. Uh, next question, Alan asks... One, was that brief animated part of the multiverse hopping uh, the Spider-Verse? And two, as a diehard Sleepwalker fan, I was disappointed they didn't explore more of Nightmare and the Mindscape. Same here. I've, yeah. Uh, we listened to our episode a couple episodes down. back where we very heavily predicted that Nightmare would be the villain. We were wrong about that, but that's fine. Uh, do you think the Nightmare Illusions give hope of seeing that in the future? And then three, can you talk more about Strange Academy uh, that you referenced in the pod? Sure. Uh, do you, uh, Let's take these uh, sequentially. Uh, Rosie, do we think that that was the Spider-Verse? I do believe that one of the moments when they're hopping through, we go through the Spider-Noir world. I am. I would mm. I would stake a claim that I that, that is that, right. I, I, I feel the same. I feel the same exact way. The black and white world, yeah, I think, was the Spider-Noir A little bit world. rotoscoped, a little bit thicker yeah. lines. Look, looked like we could have seen Nick Cage's Spider-Noir going through there. Yeah. Very cool. Um, then, do we think we see a nightmare somehow in the MCU in the future. I actually think we do. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, just the fact that we are talking about the dream dimension and the way that people access a different plane of reality yeah. when they sleep, uh, that is, that's Nightmare's realm, essentially. Uh, there Now, there is a dream dimension that is like good dreams. And then, of course, Nightmare's uh, realm uh, specifically deals with nightmares. But... I I would I would bet that we see him. He's a major strange antagonist. Is a is a uh, is a a major and super scary villain. We as as we've said, we've we've kind of like alluded to uh, the way Nightmare's dimension works. And another thing is, like we're running through villains mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. uh, Rosie. At, at what point? And this is like a broader question I've been thinking about. 
who's the first villain that comes back? Right. You know, because we're defeating a lot of these. And, and, and you know, one of the uh, any any comics reader will tell you one of the big like, oh, shit moments in comics is when the big reveal happens on the last page and you realize <laughs> like, like, oh, my God, it's dark side or oh, my God, it is Ultron. Like and and here comes this major villain coming back. Do we th- do we think do we think we see a villain come back again in the MCU to fight our friends? Yes, I 100 percent. Look, this is the reality of it. For, OK, you know, what, Alan, I will say as a also Sleepwalker fan. I think you are right. I think Nightmare's going to come into it. I also think they took yeah. a lot from Sleepwalker in this movie. They, they really did, The yeah. Mindscape stuff is basically like this dream world, like between the dream world and the astral plane. That's basically, this, the dreamwalking is almost like sleepwalking. Also, pretty sure that who America was fighting at the beginning was Cobweb. So don't worry, it's going to happen. Now, Jason, yes. I think Thanos is coming back. That It just makes so... Oh! Hundred percent in the comics, Thanos kid is Thanos a real thing. Like kid no, 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 Thanos, no. I think, adult Thanos, alternate. So Thanos. one of the best things that Jim Starlin, creator of Thanos, absolute yeah. icon, love him. One of the things that he has installed into the Thanos <laughs> canon is that every version there's like millions of Thanos clones in the comic books. Like yeah. there's all these different versions. If a different creator did something that Jim didn't like with Thanos, he'd be like, "Eh, that was a clone. That wasn't the real Thanos." So there's <laughs> lots of different ways. Also in the comics. Thanos is deeply connected to death. Thanos gets resurrected. I think we could see a resurrected version of Thanos. I think that with James Gunn and Guardians of the Galaxy 3 coming soon that is going to have Adam Warlock, they announced the casting that is confirmed. Adam Warlock is so deeply connected to Thanos. And I think we could see a version where Thanos is more of an ally or an anti-hero. And we could be dealing with an evil kind of Magus um, and Adam Warlock split. And also, as scary as it is, we're going to be five years away from Endgame very soon. And then it would only be a couple of years till we're seven years away. And I wouldn't be surprised. I think What If was a really cool think tank for different ideas. And I think I love the T'Challa episode and I love the notion of him being this great, powerful force of good who could even turn Thanos good, you know? But I also think it was kind of teasing the notion of a Thanos who is more of a heel turn, sometimes good, sometimes bad force in the MCU. And I I don't think, I think that if one villain comes back, oh, also Dormammu with the end of Doctor Strange 2. Oh, yeah. Yeah, You know, because that clear is his niece and that's who we see Doctor Strange leave with at the end. But that would be less of a big surprise and more of kind of like, oh, there's that floating cosmic doom head. But Thanos, I think if you did an echo of the Avengers stinger, you know, if you if you do those echoes of like those big moments that make people scream in the theater. If you had that again with a Thanos stinger, I think people, especially because they never really did that. Well, they didn't do it at all. They hinted at it in Endgame and made me scream and it wasn't death. It was Red Skull in a cloak. But but I think that there's a lot to delve into there of Thanos as this love lost, desperate kind of romantic who's obsessed with death. Here's who I think is coming back. Okay, I'm ready. Kind of in in a very similar way to you. I think Ultron comes back and I think Ultron beamed his brain, Mm. his like, you know, because he's not the body. He's not. Yeah, he's the uh, consciousness. He's the consciousness. Right. I think he beamed his consciousness just like out 
uh, outside of Earth, out into space, hoping to find some other like AI space computer deep in space. And I think he found it. And uh, this is, uh, you know, I'm basing this off of Annihilation mm-hmm, Conquest, mm-hmm. one of, for my money, Annihilation and Annihilation Conquest that uh, really relaunched the Guardians of the Galaxy as currently constituted in, in Marvel Comics. I think those two crossover events are two of the best things that Marvel has ever done. And uh, Ultron is the major villain of one of them. He he has been beamed out into space. He creates all these versions like, you know, like fearsome, destructive robots created in his, his image. And he sends out this annihilation wave to just basically destroy everything in his path. And I think that there's a world in which Ultron has done that in the MCU I, and he's out there somewhere. I agree. And also, I think there's two things in Doctor Strange that make that seem very, very relevant, which is there is an annihilation name drop. They say it in the yep. same way they drop incursion. And we saw an Ultron bot that worked. So I don't think those two things are disconnected. I think that's very smart. Let's go! And then finally, can you talk more about Strange Academy, uh, which we referenced in the pod? Sure. So Strange Academy is a, a, a Marvel Comics title uh, creative team, Scotty Young and her, her Umberto Ramos. Um, it launched in 2020, and it is uh, it, it's Marvel Comics Hogwarts. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Strange and uh, some of the most powerful magic users in the Marvel uh, universe uh, get together. They found this school uh, that Strange then runs, and we meet a lot of wonderful uh, young students, uh, you know, uh, Dormammu's son, <laughs> uh, a frost giant, various others, and we get to watch them on their magical journey um, in a school setting. It's just like a super, super, super fun book. And I just, f- with America Chavez mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. Uh, at Kamartage, learning to be a sorcerer, it, you know, it feels like we've got the first student for the Strange Academy yeah. if they ever decide to do it. And it's just like, it's an easy win for a Disney Plus show if they ever launch oh, that. And the art, the art is so good, and it's like set it's in so New Orleans, good. so it has this kind of folkloric like space to the idea of magic and like the history of magic in the area. And it is just very fun. And I hope that and and you they just bring in so many cool magic characters, like even like Nico from the Runaways yeah. and like Man Thing, who I love. Like there's just a lot of. There's a lot of cool nods and and notions of like what a magic character can be. And in a way, that's just so relevant right now in the MCU because yes. we're talking so much about who these different magic characters are. How do their powers work? Where do we find more of them? Are they born? Are they taught? Da-da-da-da-da. So yeah, that's a that's a really great pick. Next question, Angela T on Twitter asks, do you think the ending of this movie makes it impossible for Wanda's twins to become young Avengers slash teenagers? Ooh, Jason, I know you have some thoughts on this. I think it makes it incredibly possible. I think what's going to happen is we're going to go open a portal to one of the many, many, many universes, apparently, where Wanda um, gave birth to uh, uh, Billy and Tommy, and we're going to bring those kids to 616, and they are going to become Wiccan and Speed of the Young Avengers. Yeah. Like, just the fact that they're out there in the rest of the multiverse, it, it makes it even more possible. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Roger? Yeah, I think so, totally. I also think they've established, like, a tragic mother storyline if they wanted to use the ones from the 838. I also yeah. think 
that the notion of them existing in the multiverse and this kind of cosmic journey we're going on in the MCU at the moment means we could even see something where we meet Hulkling in Secret Invasion, and which is a scroll story. Hulkling is a scroll, and we even maybe met Billy there instead. You know, and in, it, and we kind of meet these different versions of them. We could even have more than one. But I, I agree with you that we're in a space where the ending actually makes them even more likely to be playing a major part in the future of the MCU. My good friend Liz asks, what's the difference between a sorcerer and a witch? Do you have to be born a witch? Is Loki a witch? How does that work? She also asks, how many TVAs are there? And sub-question, is the quantum realm its own universe or our universe? Okay, let's take these in order. Okay. Um, do you want to take the sorcerer versus witch thing first? Okay, I think this is like one of the most this, everyone's just asked such great questions, first of all. Thank you. You're really these, asking these the really vital great. questions. And Liz, I think this is one of the most important questions in the MCU. In the comics, this is very malleable. But I think yes. in the MCU, they have essentially shown us quite explicitly that you have to be born a witch or you right. learn to be a sorcerer. So I do think that would mean Loki is technically a witch in the MCU. But Loki is also technically a god. So then you end up in that That's situation right. where what's the difference between a god and a witch? I think the answer there would probably be a god is born from a deity who has powers and that's why they inherit them. Whereas someone like Wanda, as far as we know in the MCU now, was born to two humans and her powers manifested like a mutant in a moment of fear. And then she became, uh, she had her powers and she was officially a witch. And Agatha in WandaVision kind of speaks to this when she talks about there being communities of witches who train yes. and who recognize those who are born. So I think in the MCU, it is, as Liz stated, that you are born a witch or you can learn to be a sorcerer like Stephen Strange. Now, in the comics, I forget where she says this, but Agatha Harkness, I think in the I want to say it's in the Scarlet Witch Solo series. She says something like, wherever in the universe there is life, there's witches and magic. So I think that uh, one of the ways we can think about this is there's different sources of magic in Marvel comics. Like there is, for Iron Fist, there's Chi. Uh, you know, of course, the Asgardians have their own version of magic, which is basically like Asgardian technology. There's chaos magic, which is what Wanda uh, taps into in the in Marvel comics. The Odin force, which is like Odin's own energies that become magic. Uh, there is necromancy, the yep. magic of and blood magic, kind of a more evil magic. And I think that um, it thinking about magic that way. I'm guessing that MCU witchcraft and the MCU version of witches is just like natural magic that is derived from life. From yeah. Whereas sorcery is mad, like interdimensional magic and magic derived from the like the Vashanti yeah, and books, these other basically. notable magical, like magical deities. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting in Multiverse of Madness where they say runes mean witchcraft. That's how we know, right. because sorcerers use spells and spell casting, yes. but witches carve runes. So I think the more we go into it, the more this kind of notion of different types of magic is going to grow. You said, so this is really controversial and probably not true at all, but you just said something that made me wonder, like, do you think there's a world where basically 
the MCU's first wave of mutants are just seen as witches. Like they have, people just think they have Scarlet Witch's power and they're actually just witches rather than mutants. And then we learn more because it seems like their version of magic is very similar to the comic book version of mutants. I, I, that would be a really fun way to do it. Um, And it brings with it the thing that we've talked about, which is important when you're going to introduce the X-Men, which is you need that, uh, society needs to hate and fear these figures. Uh, and that would bring in, that would be a really cool way to do it. Um, okay. Then Liz asks, and these are very, this is like, this is an important question. Let's take the last part of it first. How many TVAs are there? So this is unclear. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me just say in the comics, the TVA is infinitely large because think about it as uh, the TVA is dealing with all these different timelines and uh, all these different realities. And in the offices of the TVA, there's an office that deals with every single reality, right? So there's one that deals with 616. There's one that deals with 617. And because there are an infinite number of realities, the office space required by the TVA is infinitely large. So I suspect that it works that way where the TVA is just like this massively, infinitely large place that deals with the infinitely large multiverse. It may not be the case. Of course, at the end of Loki, we saw that there was a statue of he who remains there uh, in the TVA uh, annex, uh, leading us to believe that he had somehow changed the timeline so that so that Kang, he who remains, uh, is is now... Uh, you know, like the ruler of the TVA, he, that he changed something. How do you think it works, Rosie? I think you're right. When when I first watched the final episode of Loki and that stinger, I assumed that it meant he was in a different universe's version of the TVA, but I don't think that's the case. I think that you are right. The one thing that the TVA in Loki adapted so well from the comic books, it is a boring bureaucracy. It is like offices. Right. It's very boring. So basically all you have to imagine is each multiverse has its like, boring office block that deals with that multiverse so i think you're right i think there is a in the comics it's the three uh kind of people who lead it in this they implied that and then we learned it was he who remains i think there is a singular office that is in charge of all of the multiverse each multiversal branch of the tva but they are technically one branch now here here is how i can explain the uh, the Kang statue, essentially, at the end of Loki. So he who remains and Kang are the same mm-hmm. person, just like Immortus is a, is also a version of Kang, just as Rama Tut is also a version of Kang. So he who remains at the end of Loki was kind of like the best version, like the most chill version of Kang. And he talks about this, like, I was bloodthirsty. Yeah. I, I'd fought a million wars, but... so. He Who Remains was the most calm, most uh, reliable, and most peaceable version of a very, very violent character that had evolved over multiple, multiple, multiple timelines. And because of the events of Loki, it flipped. Instead of He Who Remains Mm -hmm. being in charge of the TVA, it was the less evolved, more violent, more warlike version of himself, Kang. So yeah. really, it's actually the same person as yeah, you're is just, still in you're charge in a of the TVA. Version. 
of, right. yeah, and it also could be like a before time. It could be an after time. The real thing that I think clued us in was like, maybe they there was things that people didn't know. They could have had their minds wiped. There's all kind of men in black answers that could have occurred. But I think you're right. That's basically what if Kang the Conqueror ran the TVA instead of He Who Remains. And then uh, finally, the quantum realm, yes. which we are going to see in uh, in Ant Man Quantum Ant Man and the Wasp Quantumania, is the quantum realm also known as the microverse in Marvel Comics? Is it its own universe or a part of our universe? I, I think it's pretty clearly like a separate universe that you can get to just by shrinking. Yeah, it's like it's like a the instead of a portal into it, the portal is shrinking so small that you yes. become you know, quantum-sized or whatever they would call it in the Ant-Man. And the notion is, like, it is its own singular dimension. That is... That's right. And that's why time moves differently there. That's why people can survive there for a certain amount of time or other people can't or things grow very large, all these different kind of things and some things are tiny. I think I think it's its own universe or dimension, but I also think it's a really clever and an interesting question because i think this is where the notion of like multiverse and different universes yes. versus dimensions becomes confusing like the quantum realm and then the negative zone which is a key fantastic four location those have both worked yes. more as dimensions than singular universes that run alongside so i think when we get more and we will probably get very into that definition in ant-man and the wasp quantumania so i think we're safe to say it's separate and i'll be interested to see the route that they go with it. Because with Kang playing a major role in that movie and the quantum realm existing, that could definitely be a space to potentially introduce or tease the Fantastic Four in a more concrete way than the Multiverse of Madness did. For any Marvel Unlimited Mm -hmm. uh, people or people who have access to back issues, Hulk 140 by uh, Harlan Ellison and Roy Thomas as writers with the great Herb Trimp as the penciler. is is a great and very influential Hulk adventure in which he is shrunk down uh, and, and discovers this kingdom inside the microverse and then falls in love with uh, one of Hulk's great loves ever, Jarella, uh, a a very important figure there in the microverse. It's a really fun adventure from the uh, from the Bronze Era of comics. Is it silver? Uh, from the Silver it, Age of comics. Yeah, it's like 1971. Yeah, it's very controversial. Silver bronze, silver bronze. <laughs> silver, the silver and or bronze era of comics. Depending on your belief system. Yes, that's right. So this is, was from my DMs and Christian asked... Oh, I love it. Uh, what can comics should I read to understand the multiverse? Oh, Rosie, take it away. <laughs> yes, I have three. I have three. Now... Will these help you understand the multiverse? Mm, the multiverse is a, a many splendid, strange thing, but these are good Kang story arcs that will be useful to you. So the first one is Avengers 267 to 269. That's a great uh, one. Roger Stern at writing, obviously. Yep. Uh, John Buscema breakdowns, Tom Palmer finishes, Howard Mackey was the editor on that one, and Mark Grunenwald as well, who we know is like a really big part of Loki and the stuff that we saw there. This is the arc that introduces the notion of many Kangs and 
the Council of Kings. Super important. Specifically. Super, super important stuff, yeah. So if... You'll see a lot of Rick and Morty oh. kind of elements in this. You'll see a lot of Council of Reeds. Yes. Uh, Fantastic Four elements it, that uh, were, were started right here. Mm-hmm. And if you're if you are a fan of Rick and Morty, you know, my, you will hear in our chat with Michael Waldron, the writer of uh, Multiverse of Madness... Rick and Morty was a big comic book room, and this is one of the comic books that was most influential. So, like, and something really, really fun about it is you get multiple versions of the heroes, you get multiple versions of Kang. This is also a Monica Rambeau uh, era Avengers. So, there's just a lot here that seems like it's going to be very important. Namor. And yeah, it's really fun. And the Council of Kangs, as Jason said, is like, when you read it, you'll be like, Oh, like, I see. This is where this comes from. This is where that comes from. Yes. One that I'm going to reference here, which is very relevant because of Loki and is also just really fun. Mark Grunewald back again. He's the writer this time. Pencils by Mike Gustavich, Inca, Bud LaRosa, colorist Chris Mathias, letterer Steve Dutro. What is the comic called? It is called Avengers, the Terminatrix Objective. Yes. Now, this is really fun. And I think this is from 1993. It's incredibly 90s. And I think the reason that people will be more interested in this comic right now is it's about Ravona Renslayer, who we met in Loki. And yeah. it is a story where she takes on the aesthetic and persona of Kang. And, and it is like very, very cool and weird. And it is an extremely strange and extreme 90s comic. But I do think it's actually something that they're really looking to at this moment in time. Like, this was a book that definitely was read in that Loki writer's room. And also, the art is just really cool and weird. Ravona is really cool. 90s was was an absolutely bizarre time for comics. uh, And a lot of the art is unique. Mm Mm-hmm. Very unique. And this stuff is like, if you want to talk about characters who are in there now, this is like a, a story that stars alternate versions of the Avengers, right? So you have Thunderstrike Thor, which is very interesting because the <laughs> current new Thor movie, Thor Love and Thunder, looks like it's going to really take from that era aesthetically. You have US Agent, who we met recently, and That's right. you have War Machine, who's going to be coming up in Armor Wars. So there are things here that are that feel relevant. And also, like if you just want to out-and-out wild sci-fi superhero book, this is the one. If all of that feels a bit like, oh, I don't want to have to read a whole arc, there was a single issue that came out last year, which was Marvel Comics' way of essentially introducing readers to Kang and to a bunch of different stuff that was going to happen in the Marvel Comics universe and a little bit of the MCU, um, which was called Timeless by Jeb McKay, who wrote Death of Doctor Strange, which we were shouting out Mm -hmm. uh, and then it's got a ton of art- artists, Kev Walker, Greg Land, Mark Bagley, Andrew Hennessy, Jay Leistein, Marte Garcia. There's just a bunch of people on there, uh, lettered by Ariana Mayer. And that is just a really, really great singular one-shot about Kang, about the impact of Kang, about the timeline of Kang, and about the way that Kang can influence the Marvel Universe. And it's just, that's a great starting point, I think, especially if you're more into contemporary comics and you don't necessarily know how to embrace the strange 90s art of it all (laughs) okay so jason what about you i i have just one to add to that really excellent um list i would add um west coast avengers the out of time out it's 
out of time, excuse me, O-U-T-T-A, out of time arc, which starts uh, uh, on West Coast Avengers, volume two, number 17. This is uh, written by Steve Englehart, pencils by Al Milgram, uh, Joe Sinan on the inks, uh, Kevin F- Food in a Witch, Food in a Witch. Uh, Ken Fudinowich on the colors, uh, Janice Chang on the lettering, Ooh, uh, edited by yeah, edited by Mark Grunwald. And um, first of all, you get some of uh, some West Coast Avengers flavor. For those of you who haven't, uh, who are not fans of West Coast Avengers, haven't picked up a really fun book of the mid eighties. And of course there's a lot of threads in some of the Disney plus shows that we've talked about in the past. Um, Hawkeye in particular had laid some threads that Mm -hmm. could lead to the foundation of a West coast Avengers team. Um, And it's a really, really fun um, time traveling adventure that gives you a lot of the backstory of Kang and how the whole Kang shebang works. Super, super fun, uh, super fun arc. And then our question is from Rosie. Rosie it's Knight me. asks. <laughs> Rosie Knight asks, uh, and this is this comes from um, our interview with Michael Waldron in the next segment, which you will hear. He ha- Mike has a very specific answer or non-answer, we should say, on the question of the various cameos and people that appear uh, in in the Illuminati sequence in Multiverse of Madness, and that led us. Or it leads Rosie to ask, what's the deal with Charles Xavier and Patrick Stewart? So what is the deal, Rosie? (laughs) Yeah, Michael, such a brilliant interview. Just so, and it is a spoiler interview. Like you are going to get insights into the movie. Right. But one thing that kind of blew my mind was Michael said, when I, we, he's a fan of the X-Men animated series, you know, as most of us are. And I said to him, how does it feel to have been the one to introduce Charles Xavier in the yellow wheelchair, you know? And he was like, I got to be very careful about what I say about the names and who's in the movie and da 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 da. And I thought, well, that's interesting because everything else has been very <laughs> spoiler friendly. And that is something that we all assumed happened. So I just think it's really interesting. I think it's quite exciting. I would love to know the reasoning behind why you couldn't necessarily say that's Charles or that it was the Charles from the animated universe. And I just think it's, I think anything to do with the X-Men is exciting, but that was an answer that made me think there could be more Charles Xavier in our future in whatever guise. Right. I think that the fun, the fun theory is that Patrick Stewart, who had previously been outspoken in his desire to not do Charles Xavier again as part of the MCU, uh, but who had recently been quoted as saying, actually, like, there's some really fun, interesting stories here, something to that effect. (laughs) Um, I think that the, the fun theory version is that Oh, maybe Patrick could do it. Maybe Patrick, maybe mm-hmm. as you know, we had theorized that like this could potentially be the end of these characters in the MCU. Um, certainly everybody, but maybe Peggy Carter is done here. But Michael's uh, answer or non-answer, evasive answer, kind of like opens the doorway to maybe, maybe Patrick Stewart will do it. I think that the the boring, the boring version is. Maybe Marvel just doesn't know particularly mm-hmm. what they are going to do yet and just don't want to get painted into a corner of yeah. it being it, it, like it is that Charles Xavier. Yeah, of course it is. But is it, does it the Charles Xavier? Is, is the you're going to know Xavier? him? 
Right. To say to state that would paint them into a corner that they would then have to retcon if they go a different way. And so they just want to keep their options open. That's the boring version, I think. But that also that that answer also, I mean, both of us in the in the room at the same time were like, ooh, Ooh, that's interesting. Hold on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. so my tinfoil hat like theory, which I love to have. Mine is that you can't really say it's Charles Xavier because like he's a scroll. And that's what the big reveal is going to be is like the 838 universe is like a scroll universe. And so all those Illuminatis were just scrolls. And that's why I think you can't call him Charles Xavier. <laughs> so give somebody give me $10 if that's true in like five years. <laughs> and then finally, Paul asks, uh, uh, let's say we push a, a hole in our own universe and safely jump across into a universe which is similar to ours, but they receive the Earth 838 MCU in their cinemas. What would be the first Earth 838 MCU movie? This is a great question. Wow. Okay. Uh, who do you, man, Rosie, who do you, what do you think the first, uh, the first Earth 838 movie is? I think that we should run down. Let's, so yeah, let's Illuminati, run down who it could let's be. run down the Illuminati first. Okay. We've got Reed Richards, of course, Mars Man of the Universe. We've got, uh, uh, Monica uh, Rambeau, uh, Captain as Captain Marvel. Marvel, as Captain Marvel. Uh, we have got, uh, Peggy Carter as Captain Britain slash Captain Carter. Uh, we have Black Bolt of the Inhumans. Yes. We have Professor Charles Xavier, headmaster of uh, Xavier School uh, for Gifted Children. And, of course, we have a, a Mordo, Baron Mordo, uh, and the Angry Guy, Sorcerer Supreme of the Universe uh, uh, 838. What is our first movie, considering that that group we saw soloed Thanos? So they defeated whatever their Thanos saga is. That is the team that defeats Thanos on Titan, apparently. Okay. So what's the first movie? So I think if we're talking about it in an MCU frame of mind, so it's an alt universe where the MCU is set up and established in the same way as our MCU, that would mean that the 838 Avi Arad and, you know, Kevin Feige, and yes. they're like trying to find that character— I think that the outlier, but the most likely movie you could make for that slightly low budget, the old universe, John Favreau, as much as you've got two of the biggest teams included here, a Fantastic Four and X-Men, I think that would be your Avengers. So I think, I actually think the first film would be like maybe Captain Carter, the first Avenger. You know, that's their starting point to build the MCU on if we're talking of the MCU of it all. So you get that story that we see in What If, but expounded upon. You maybe see the establishment of S.H.I.E.L.D. in that universe. And then you bring in those other characters from that space. Maybe the stinger is some is is Captain Carter going to speak to Reed or going to speak to Charles about yeah. recruiting mutants for S.H.I.E.L.D. or something. <laughs> I think that's the that's if we it's hard to remember now, but Iron Man, when it came out, that was a risk. That was a last-ditch attempt. Risk. That was a, that was a. Oh my God, can you believe they're doing this? And I think that nature of that would be a first I Avenger, think, Captain Carter. I think you're absolutely right, and that would lead to the rest of them. Let's do. Let me do some like deductive reasoning based on the uh, the little flashback snippet that we see in Multiverse of Madness when we see uh, the Illuminati standing over the the dead body of Thanos on Titan. So 
it's just the Illuminati, right? Fantastic Four not there. I guess mm-hmm. Sue could there like Sue could be there, but invisible, invisible. like <laughs> <laughs> That's the Stanley Lee right, right. so, Sue's like in so, the background. So I guess like there's a world where Sue is actually is helping, right? Uh, so and and also no X Men. So this leads mm-hmm. me to believe that eight three eight is a world in which Charles Xavier maybe founds his school or however he comes to prominence. He doesn't put together an X Men team, and yeah. and Reed doesn't put together or is not part of a Fantastic Four team because otherwise, why would they not yeah. be there? Okay, so so no no no. I think Reed Reed says that whatever happens, there could be a. F- he has the four in his chest. And we know and he that mentioned, he, right. and he, he mentions the, the kids. kids. So he mentions I think the kids. We could be living in a world where their version of the Fantastic Four is him, Sue, Valerian Franklin, rather than I, so it's the family four, it's the first family and right. the deepest kind of framework. I think you're right. I think this could be an 838 universe where Charles Xavier does the right thing and does not start a child <laughs> army yeah. from his house. Like he just lets the kids stay in school and play baseball. He's not sending children out to die, like fighting <laughs> people for humans who don't even like them. You know, so I think it is that- a much more it is a, it is seemingly a much more utop- utopian society. Like everyone it's much more chilled out potentially. We and don't also, know a lot about it, but we, we, I, we're guessing that. I wonder if the other notion of this is something you always bring up, which I think is really funny and true about the Illuminati, where it's like, I wonder if the reason that the rest of the like Sue wasn't there or Gene or any of these helpful heroes is because like the Illuminati kind of sucks and keeps it all a secret. So, yes. like, Sue just doesn't know. She thinks Reed's at, like, the Baxter building. Jean's at home with Storm's the headmaster of the school because Charles is always away. Like, Carol Danvers, who's obviously Maria Rambo's wife, she's probably yeah. out fighting, thinking, doesn't know where she is, you know. I think that there's something kind of funny to that notion that, like the comics, it's this group of people who think they know better than everyone else. So... But it does seem strange that if you had like Jean Grey and Storm and, you know, the Sue who essentially has like an immortal power that can, like it's a power that can save anyone's lives. It does seem a bit silly that they wouldn't be there for Thanos. Now, here's the other option, right? Uh, They have the the statue for Stephen Strange uh, for his efforts defeating Thanos. Of course, that's PR and it was the Illuminati. But Mm. still, it's clear that Thanos was a major, major, major threat. There's... I guess the one of the options is Thanos killed, yeah, you know, killed the thing, killed the Human Torch, killed, killed all, killed Sue, killed all of the X Men except for Professor Charles Xavier, and that's why it had to be the Illuminati mm. alone facing them. So there's there's a world in which that was also the case. Yeah. Um, Maybe they also had had an Avengers team and they got killed by Thanos. Yeah. Like, there's lots of different versions, I think. And, yeah, I would actually love to see it. <laughs> All of which is to say, I think that you are exactly right. I think that Thanos killing everyone aside, I think the movie that makes the most sense is the Captain Peggy Carter movie, right? It can be it, it can be just like Captain America mm-hmm. First Avenger, just Peggy Carter. Uh, from a more British-centric point of view, she gets injected with the super soldier serum, goes on to fight the uh, Nazis on Hydra, defeats them, etc., becomes the first Avenger. They assemble an Avengers team around her. 
that Avengers team is wiped out by Thanos and that's the Illuminati has to go and, and save the day. But I think that you're whatever the case after the fact, I think you're exactly right that it would yeah. have to be Peggy Carter as the first movie. Um, that was a really, really fun question. Yeah. Uh, thanks to everyone who who submitted questions. We love doing this. We love hearing from you. Continue to submit questions, even though we're not asking for them. Uh, and if we get uh, interesting ones, we will be sure to answer them uh, in the run of our episodes. Up next, Hive Mind with Loki and Multiverse of Madness writer Michael Waldron. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Welcome to The Hive Mind, where we explore a topic in more detail with the help of expert guests. This week, we could not have a more expert guest to help us talk about Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. It is Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness screenwriter Michael Waldron. Hello. Hi, guys. Hey, Michael. Thanks for uh, allowing us in the junket verse. <laughs> Which Marvel character in the MCU would give the best wrestling promos, you think? <sighs> I don't know, man. Wanda cut some good ones in. in she did. Uh, she really did. In in this in this movie, you know. So I think she's pretty good. Um, Thanos is a pretty good monster heel. Oh yeah, um, great one. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. They're they're both pretty good. So by the way, I'm such a fan of you guys. I'm I'm so excited. Oh, uh, thanks. I've been thanks so much. A, I'm such a longtime Ringer fan and everything. Can we just talk about the Hawks? This whole can we talk about Trey Young? This entire they uh, need that second ball handler, Mike. That's what needs to happen. <laughs> Bradley Beal. Can we talk about Bradley Beal? Can we get him? Get him it feels Hawks? like it feels like uh, between you and I, it feels like Bradley Beal to Miami is the thing that everybody's been talking about. Not to uh, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll throw out all the tough questions then. Uh, those will yeah, be gone. Okay, we'll go. <laughs> sounds good. Um, but thanks. That's so kind of you to say. Yeah. Um, Really I wanted to ask, it. I guess, like, how how did you find the emotional, what is the emotional, like, key to unlocking a character like Strange, who I think if, you know, is, is his, like, main, uh, you know, character trait is, like, kind of a dick, very high a regard for himself. How'd you unlock this guy? Um... Yeah, it's tricky, right? I, I I look to I actually I, I look to great television. I, I I thought about Mad Men, my favorite show, mm. um, The Sopranos, shows about it's like the difficult men trope, I guess, mm. but shows about characters that refuse that don't want to look inward and are forced. Too. I feel like I feel like that's what the journey of Mad Men is, is maybe Don Don Draper not necessarily changing, but he gains an awareness of who he is and why he is that way. And I I seized on that a little bit for for Strange. Um 
And it, and it feels like that's uh, something you can really do in multiversal storytelling yeah. with Loki and you do it here. You're meeting literal mirror images of yourself and, and strange, you know, through his journey comes to realize that, that maybe he's lying to himself when he says he's happy and, and mm-hmm. that, that living this, this kind of emotionally closed off life just because he's the best superhero doesn't mean that he's fulfilled. And, and that, that felt like enough of an interesting journey to send a guy on in, in a superhero movie. Yeah. And then I guess kind of the counterpoint slash reflection to, to use upon of that is Wanda, who's this character who's almost defined by emotions and just kind of what was it like for you to have to bring her on this journey, which to us, we've talked about a lot on the podcast, felt very true to her comic book backstory. But I think for a lot of people will be quite surprised. So what was it like to take her on that antagonist journey? Um, Scary. Uh, because I, because WandaVision is so good and it was made by my friends and, and you, you don't want to do a disservice to it, but at the same time, you have to be bold and you, and you have to, you know, felt like we had to innovate and push the character forward. And as you said, this is true to who the character is in the comics. Yeah. Um, this is, this is where she was always heading and, for me, it was it was making the the judgment call that that I that I felt like by the end of the events of WandaVision, she was essentially there. She she was she was ready that that she had she had encountered and 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 reckoned with her grief in WandaVision, but I don't think resolved it entirely. And and she walked away with the dark hold. And the knowledge that her children existed elsewhere in the multiverse, and and that felt like how we could get into her her greatest darkest stories from the comics, um, and selfishly have a lot of fun with her <laughs> Terminator like villain. <laughs> what's your what's your um, like origin story with with uh, some of these comic stories? Uh, were you a big comics reader coming up as a as a young person? I was not. I was I was a wrestling fan. I was like that. That was my that was my thing. I, I feel like that's what my little kid brain latched onto um, was Hulk Hogan turning heel. <laughs> so that's like that. Maybe maybe that's the, you know what the, the movie is one giant Wanda leg dropping Randy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. So, so I came to it later, um, really when I was in the Rick and Morty room, because so many of those Mm. guys were big fans. And that's when I started reading like the Tom King vision and the Matt Fraction Hawkeye stuff. And and of course, now I feel like I've read so much of it. (laughs) It was really wrestling. That was my comic books, I feel like. Yeah. And I I think like you were a fan of the X-Men animated series, right? Yes. Yes. So, so what was it like to get to be the one to introduce the animated series Xavier and the yellow chair into kind of a live action space. Cause I know that was with the, that was the chills moment. Yeah. What was that like for you? 
It was very cool. Look, I, I, I'm, I, I still have, I have to be cagey still of about course. Yeah. the names of these people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you're going to see me get launched uh, <laughs> like a jackass stunt. For <laughs> um, me piano. It, it was yeah. so awesome. It was so cool. Uh, yeah, I, I was losing my mind the entire time. I couldn't believe it. You've been vocal about your love uh, for uh, Thor the Dark World. Uh, and as a lover of hot takes, I'd love to hear that expounded upon more. My personal hot take on it is, is that, hey, that third act and the and the climactic fight is actually pretty freaking great. Like, is it not? Uh, what, stand for Thor the Dark World, one of the most maligned MCU uh, movies out there. Yes, okay. Uh, well, it, it's... Basically a Loki movie. Uh, it is. Which is which is great. It's it has um the death of Thor and Loki's mother is an amazing moment. The over music, the, the MOS reveal of Loki being told that his mother was killed and him turning his back and telekinetically blowing the furniture over is so great. It's Thor and Loki fight. It's like Loki turning good. It's his, Mm -hmm. it's where he Han Solo flies back into the, you know, into the trench and saves the way. Like it's, it's, it's great. Um, So it's the start of that redemption arc. There's awesome action. I agree in that, in that third Mm -hmm. act. Um, and then Eccleston is like it, it's Malekith is is a cool villain like like he's a great actor. Uh, so yeah, I don't know, man. It's I I think it's a pretty cool movie. Yeah, I I am also a fan of it. I also do think it's very interesting that that's a movie that I know like a lot of people who really like fantasy and like especially like a lot of women really always love that movie. And I always think it's I love to see the movies that are seen as cool and the ones that aren't. And I think there's something interesting there, but I hope your love will translate to more people rewatching it because it's good. It's, it's, good. Also, it's also good. It's Alan T. It's, it's a Mad Men. I'm yeah. like, I'm like, Mad yeah. Men like, 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 yeah, no wonder there's some, some great character uh stuff in there i you know i, I don't know i guess it all comes in, with a lot of these movies it's it's what do you what expectations do you come into them with mm-hmm. i i think that movie's cool yeah well i think this is a very cool movie and i was wondering like could you talk a little bit about working with sam because i feel like there's definitely shades of thor the dark world and the things that are cool in there the kind of gothic dark fantasy elements they really came over to to multiverse of madness so could you talk a little bit about building that kind of visual landscape once you guys started getting to work together like wonder on the dark hold with danny elfman's score going over doing a cool montage that's like the most my favorite part so cool yeah the electric guitar is yeah (laughs) incredible um I, you know, when, when Sam came on, I, I, Sam came on this movie like three days after me. And so I just went back through Sam's library and, and I felt like it was my job because I come from TV where, where I was used to the, the television writer, you have more control, I guess, than you yeah. do in features. And so I was like, okay, I'm working for Sam Raimi. 
and I've got it. What I, it's my job to set him up for success in every way I can. And so I tried to get an ear for the dialogue that he, in his movies and, and all of that. Um, and yeah, just, you know, he, he encouraged me. He said, you know, look, right spooky sequences, but don't feel like you've got to do that just because it's me. And I, and I think if anything, I, I forced, tried to force him to do the Sam Raimi stuff. Uh, <laughs> he, he didn't, he didn't want to just do this, the same old things, but, but I'm glad, I'm so glad we got stuff like dead strange, the, you know, yeah. the, the strange in the end and all of that. I'm actually in the middle of a Mad Men rewatch right now with uh, my partner and I watch it like every year. Uh, season five is where we're at. And one thing I've noticed and, and just thinking about you talking about Mad Men is, you know, Don's like self-awareness comes in service of it's not like he wants to be a better person, maybe in some level he wants to. He wants to be better at the thing he does. He wants to unpack his toxicity so that he can better sell things to people. Um, as we look forward into Strange's arc, is that, uh, do you feel like that is that same kind of dynamic for Strange? He doesn't necessarily want to be a nicer, better guy, less of an asshole. He wants to understand how he's an asshole so he can become a better magician. Is that kind of where we are with Strange? He's gonna, he's gonna get a little bit nicer so he can cast a spell that sells everybody a Coke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> spoiler yeah. spoiler yeah. Yeah, no i mean i I, th I think that's the interesting thing with with a character like strange is, is you know and, and and look we're in a lot of ways maybe we're just beginning his journey you see him meet clea at the end yep. mm -hmm. she's a huge part of his arc in the comics and um that's very well put about about don and, and i think that that is the kind of character that Stephen Strange is, you know, is he capable of changing who he is intrinsically or is he capable of just adapting so he can do a better job so he can be a better surgeon or so he can be a better superhero? That's interesting. As we get into our, you know, however, the, the 11th, 12th year of the MCU, those are you know, these are jobs for these guys. And I think that those are interesting questions to to ask yeah and something that our listeners really love is like to know what kind of comics they should read if they really love this movie or they want to know more what were the comics you read that most kind of influenced and and shaped this film jonathan hickman's uh in you know his avengers run where, where they're talking about i think it's new avengers i believe yeah um, the incursion stuff yes the incursion <laughs> stuff I mean, that, that stuff is just amazing. Uh, as far as a strange comic, the Brian K. Vaughn run, The Oath um, mm -hmm. is really great. And Nick West is the, Michael Stuhlbarg's character is the bad guy. And that's, yeah. part, that's a big part of why I try to keep him alive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you want to keep him out there. You never know. <laughs> um, so th th those are maybe two two good ones to to check out. Right. Uh, and then finally, Michael, uh, tell us everything about Secret Wars. I'm just kidding. Uh, thanks a lot. <laughs> this has been really great. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks guys, so much. Guys, yeah, it's, it's an honor to be on. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, that's so nice. Uh, good luck with the Hawks next season, except when they yeah, play yeah. the next. Yeah, I appreciate it. All right. Bye, guys. A huge thanks to Michael Waldron and, of course, Rosie Knight for uh, this episode of X-Ray Vision. Rosie, what have you to plug for the people this week? Well, 
I have exciting things to plug. So you, oh. obviously I have the Godzilla comic. It's coming out. Godzilla Rivals versus Batra. You can pre-order it. If you go to my Instagram, Rosie Marks, I have a link tree. There is a link there that you can show your comic shop. You can call up your comic shop. I will have exciting news of a sort of Ooh. like a fun giveaway that we're going to do with X-Ray Vision and one of our favorite shops. That will be confirmed kind of coming sooner. The, the book won't be out till... Uh, uh, a long time because it's comics, like a few months. So we'll do that closer to the line. But if you like comics and you want to support them, I posted a photo on my Instagram from Free Comic Book Day, which was last weekend at my local shop in Long Beach, which is Pop Fiction Comics. And on May 21st, from 12 till 5, I'm going to be there with a bunch of amazing creators for Transformers Day. And there'll be a ton of Transformers creators there. Nick Marino, Mark Martinez, David Marriott. Oh, wow. Uh, Brenda Chi, who is like one of my favorite artists. Oh, and shit. there's also going to be a ton of rad local Long Beach artists. So it's going to be very, very good. And I will be there and you can come and get some cool comic books. There'll be Transformers graphic novels on sale. I will draw a terrible Transformers sketch for you. <laughs> you can get good Transformers art from people who actually draw for a living. So that would just be a really cool space to celebrate the recent Beast Wars annual, which has like a ton of cool comics. So that'll be really rad. And I'll remind everyone again next week. Yeah, that's going to be super fun. Check our show notes uh, for the information on that. And I'm, I'm going to come. I'm going to come down. That's going to be so fun. Yes. Folks, check our videos on the Uncultured YouTube channel and the show notes, of course, for the listener's guide to X-ray vision, where you can get all the details and all the stuff that we talk about. If you're like, oh, what was that thing they referenced? What was that issue they referenced? What was that story arc they referenced? It's all in the show notes. Go check that out. Our next episode is on May 20th. We will hear from you then. And of course, five-star ratings on every uh, platform where you get your podcast. Give us the five-star ratings. Five, five, rate five, 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 five. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support. Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. See you next time, folks. Goodbye! Hey, Mike. Yeah, I, I want to just talk about the Illuminati today. Uh, if you notice the Illuminati of, of Earth 838, they took down Thanos with no problem. They didn't, need, they didn't need the Asgardians. They didn't need the other sorcerers. They didn't need the Wakandans. They just did it themselves, head up. Nobody else. And then they got taken out by Wanda, Mike. I got, I got to say, you got to, you got to conclude from this that Wanda it was, was an absolute steal in the draft, Mike. She should have gone number one overall. I don't know how she slipped to the second round with Pietro, uh, but, but it was obviously a mistake. Uh, and and, uh, and I think that the, you know, the Avengers regret it, Mike. I think they really regret it. I'll take my answer off the line. Thank you. Want to make Mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.